1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But what else happened before the settlers landed at Plymouth Rock more than a century later? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're taking a closer look at some of the earliest travelers from Europe to the Americas. Travel writer Tony Horwich retraced the roots of these earliest explorers to help us better understand our own American heritage. This is living, breathing history that's still fought over quite ferociously. What is the appropriate way to remember these European pioneers who, uh, by our lights, were often quite brutal? Later, sailing expert Anthony Sandberg tells us what it's like to take an excursion to today's continent of discovery, Antarctica. This is perhaps one of the last places on Earth where it's still vibrant, lush, and powerful, and so accepting of your presence. We're getting to know the earliest Europeans to visit America and embarking on our own journey to Antarctica. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring strange and unknown American lands before the developers got there and changed everything. And later in the hour we'll find out how to take a tour to a new favorite for today's adventures, the shores of Antarctica. Right now, we're joined by author Tony Horwitz. He retraced the roots of some of the 16th century European explorers to America, who came from Spain, France, and England, and whose stories we've almost forgotten. He's here to tell us what he found. His new book about this is called A Voyage Long and Strange. Tony, your book's subtitle is Rediscovering the New World. With all that's changed in the last 500 years, can you still follow in the footsteps of those early explorers? Well, for me, it was rediscovering, uh, first of all, the history of early America when um, the old world and the new world uh, collided hundreds of years ago, but also really rediscovering this continent by traveling it, looking at America through the prism of this early history. Because most Americans know 1492, and they know Jamestown, right? What is that, 1607? But there's a lost mm -hmm. century in, in the middle. A lot went on before the Mayflower. Sometimes we, we start it with Plymouth. We even neglect Jamestown. So really, there's more than a century of history that's essentially lost to most Americans, and also what happened before Columbus got here. So I really wanted to kind of dive in and fill that void in, in my own knowledge and that of other Americans, find out what did happen and try and bring it alive. Why do we start with Plymouth? Um, if you psychoanalyze that, that's 1620, right? Is there some sort mm -hmm. of national pride that makes us inclined to think that's the springboard of our great nation? I think it was more in New England pride. Uh, I think this is an instance where the saying that winners write the history is certainly true. It was really uh, uh, New Englanders, Protestants, who uh, wrote the early history of our country. And perhaps understandably, they uh, elevated their own forebearers, the, the band of pilgrims that came to Plymouth in 1620, and really neglected uh, the non-English, first of all, the Spanish, French, Portuguese, and others, but even the English at Jamestown who preceded them, um, they were Southerners, so somehow it didn't really count. <laughs> and they, uh, a bit of sleight of hand, really, and really uh, made Plymouth and Plymouth Rock the sort of foundation stone of our, of our national narrative. That is really interesting how people can change that according to, you know, the kind of history they want people to remember. But you mentioned in your book that Europeans actually traveled in the territory that encompasses half of the states before the Mayflower even landed. Exactly. I think uh, if Americans think about this period at all, they might come up with a few scraps, but imagine uh, the Spanish, say, on the fringes of Florida and the Southwest and the, the French poking around somewhere up in Canada. But actually, in the early 1500s, Europeans reached half of the states in what's now uh, the continental U.S., Coronado, a, a conquistador and his men, even rode as far as central Kansas, almost the exact geographic center of the country, 80 years before the pilgrims reached Plymouth. So I think we really have to reorient the way we think about our history, not only chronologically by starting much earlier, but also geographically. Much of this uh, early history is taking place in the south and the west and even the coast of California. Now, in your research, Tony, did you find much that gave you respect for the people who were here first, or did your research pretty much say they were just heathens that needed um, people to come and teach them how to read and write? 
Well, I think this is another part of our history that's been largely lost. I think many Americans imagine this country as a, a virgin wilderness before Europeans arrived, uh, you know, some roaming bands of nomads hunting deer and buffalo. Uh, it actually wasn't anything like that. It was a very uh, well-populated and settled continent with large agricultural societies, very sophisticated societies. And it's really in this period that we can learn about them because the early Europeans who came uh, did artwork and wrote vivid journals and really allow us to recapture this other lost hmm. part of our history, which is the native history. You know, part of it might be it's just so low-tech and so sparsely populated that it's easy to write it off as just uh, a bunch of nomads, you know, scavenging around. Except that it wasn't uh, low-tech or sparsely ah, populated. Well, tell me, what, how was it then? Well, if you read, uh, for instance, the Spanish accounts and also the archaeological record, we don't have to rely purely on the Europeans and also uh, the histories of the native peoples themselves, many of whom are still on the premises. Uh, you realize, particularly, for instance, in the south, in Mississippi Valley, you had what was called the mound culture, where um, natives erected these enormous uh, ceremonial mounds at places like Cahokia and Moundville, mm. and had large agricultural settlements uh, numbering in the tens of thousands. That might not sound huge to us today, but by the standard of the times, these were really large uh, settlements, and the Europeans were quite stunned by them, and in many ways felt they were on a par with Europe in the sophistication of the agriculture and the engineering and the aquaculture. So it, it really doesn't fit our stereotype at all. And uh, Cortez, I remember when he discovered what we call Mexico City, he, he wrote about it and compared it to Venice as far as a sophisticated uh, urban sort of uh, cultural capital. Tell us more about what Cortez found in Mexico City. You know, it's hard to judge how accurate these accounts are, particularly when it comes to things like numbers, but his men do describe it as a, a city on par with the great cities of Europe in the Middle East of that day, Constantinople, Venice, and others. The estimates are of about 100,000 people, you know, massive buildings and markets. His, his men were really stunned. But I think while Mexico City perhaps stands out, there were places to the north as well that were um, also very sophisticated. Mm. And uh, when you go to the archaeological sites and see the artwork in particular from these mound cities, it's really stunning. Now, were these uh, Europeans that we think of who uh, plotted new routes across the new land, were they mostly just crass conquistadors looking for easy wealth? That was a big part of it. Uh, that urge was by no means limited to the Spanish. I think that's another stereotype we have, that somehow the, hmm. the Spanish were all kind of gold-mad killers uh, while, you know, the English were entrepreneurial and, and democratic. If you look at, for instance, the English in Jamestown, they were looking for gold too, as were the French who came to Florida in the 1560s. So, yeah, getting rich quick was uh, certainly uh, a strong impulse, um, as it is today in America. But they were also intent on um, converting the natives as well. So it wasn't a, simply a one-track mission. Hmm. I'm speaking with Tony Horwitz, and uh, Tony's written several best-selling books, and his latest is A Voyage Long and Strange, Rediscovering the New World. Tony, when we think of these conquistadors and so on, there's legends. You know, you've got Coronado's Cities of Gold and Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth. What did you learn about Coronado's Cities of Gold? Well, he did think there was this sort of uh, magical seven cities, if not of gold, then of fabulous riches that earlier travelers to that area in the Southwest had come back with vague stories of. And he sets off from Mexico at the head of what's really an enormous force, over 2,000 people, and marches in the end or rides 3,000 miles into America chasing after this mirage of a, of a, you know, golden city until he finally gets to Kansas and realizes he's been led on by uh, natives who are intentionally misdirecting him, basically to get rid of him, and turns around and really returns to uh, Mexico in disgrace. It's uh, one of many failed expeditions from this period. Now, when you did your research, Tony, did you have uh, journals and logs from the actual explorers that you relied on? 
Yeah, the Spanish in particular were brilliant record keepers. They were great bureaucrats, so they kept detailed journals. There were legal proceedings and army musters and all kinds of other documents. Actually, this uh, this period is uh, surprisingly well documented. Mm. There are some expeditions we really know almost nothing about, but the major ones by Coronado, uh, De Soto, uh, and some of the early French and English, we really have hundreds of pages to work with, as well as in some cases artwork. Did you actually get into the documents from the actual explorers to, to do your work? Yeah, in some cases, the explorers themselves, their writing survives. Coronado, we have a, a number of his letters. He was quite a, quite a good writer. Others, it's not always the lead explorer, but perhaps a, a scribe who's along on the expedition hmm. or uh, sometimes even common soldiers. So in the case of Coronado and De Soto and some of the other expeditions, we have three and four people writing about it. Uh, so we really do have a quite a rich body of material to draw on, which is one of the mysteries in, the, in our having forgotten this period. The history is really hiding in plain sight. Well, the history is there in the documents, but it's a frustrating thing for me when I think of these episodes that they seem mythic because, as far as I know, there's not a lot of actual artifacts that a tourist can go see at a site or in a museum. Or did you find some uh, places that people should know about if they're going to try to bring this to life in their own understanding? Well, in the course of researching the book, I went to all of these places, followed Coronado's route for its uh, 3,000 miles of its duration, and the same with DeSoto and others. And it's true, there aren't a lot of artifacts, but we do have uh, some things that archaeologists have found. And also we have a number of uh, native settlements that are still there, uh, right where the uh, Spanish encountered them almost 500 years ago, for instance, Zuni, New Mexico. Uh, so I think you can still get a fairly vivid sense of what these early explorers saw. So of all your research, where would you go physically as a traveler or a tourist to get a sense of this? Is there any place that captures the feeling that Cortez or Coronado must have had when they were venturing where no white man had gone before? I think the Southwest was the part of my own travel that I found most able to connect with the history. If, if, for instance, you go to Florida, the landscape has changed so radically. So much of it has been paved over. In the Southwest, uh, one, the physical landscape, there are obviously still large areas of Arizona and New Mexico, for instance, that look much as they did hundreds of years ago. And also, you have not only uh, natives still on, on the premises, but also descendants of the early mm. Spanish, particularly in northern New Mexico. You have really a subculture of people who trace their ancestry to uh, not Coronado, but uh, ones who came soon after him to colonize that area. So you also have people who can really uh, debate with mm. and uh, help you uh, appreciate this history. That must have really been helpful for you in your work to meet those people who personally could trace it right back to those days. And also, uh, it gave me a sense of how this history is still relevant. This isn't just mm -hmm. a, a bunch of obscure stories that uh, we somehow missed in high school history. This is living, breathing history that's still fought over quite ferociously in New Mexico in particular. Of what is the appropriate way to remember these European pioneers who, uh, by our lights, were often uh, quite brutal? We're looking back 500 years at our own American history with Tony Horwitz today on Travel with Rick Steves. He's written a fascinating account of 16th century explorers to North America in his latest book, A Voyage Long and Strange. We'll see what evidence he found about Viking excursions to North America in just a moment. And you can continue our conversation by posting your thoughts in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Thanks for coming along on Travel with Rick Steves.
Ik ben Ferdi Mengi en ik ben van België. En ik reis met Rick Steves. Now, that was Flemish. And it means I am Ferdi Mengi from Belgium and I travel with Rick Steves. Ik ben Ferdi Mengi en ik ben van België en ik, uh, ik reis met Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined today by Tony Horowitz, an award-winning author who's written many best-selling books. His latest is A Voyage Long and Strange, Rediscovering the New World. Tony, we've been talking about this sort of forgotten century between 1492 and Jamestown or the Mayflower, but there's also pre-Columbian connections between Europe and the New Land. Uh, you talk about the Vikings. Is there any actual evidence of the Viking discovery of North America? Yes, there is. For a long period, historians doubted it because all we really had to go on were the Icelandic sagas, which are kind of a mix of fact and fiction. But then archaeologists in the 1960s discovered a site on the northern tip of Newfoundland, which turned out to be a Viking settlement. And I begin the book by telling the story of the Vikings and going to this site. I'm told it's the most northeasterly point of the uh, North American continent you can reach by road. It's uh, not on the way to anywhere, Lanso Meadow. It's at the very tip of Newfoundland and rather forbidding. I was there mm. in summer and there are icebergs even that time of year, but fascinating place to get a sense of what the Vikings did a thousand years ago. Well, what did it feel like? I mean, to be there and thinking the Vikings landed there a thousand years ago. In a strange way, while it's perhaps a forbidding environment to us, it's treeless and cold even in summer and unbelievably windy, you have to think about where the Vikings came from. These Vikings had come across from Iceland to Greenland, uh, hardly a garden spot. So to them, it seemed quite bountiful. It also seems that they arrived during a warming trend in the North Atlantic, and they describe grapes and other uh, bounty that isn't always evident hmm. today. It seems quite bleak now. Well, they, they named Greenland Greenland. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of odd. Well, that was sort of a uh, clever marketing ploy by Eric the Red. He thought if he uh, called it that, then people would come settle oh. it. But needless to say, it, not much of it was green, just a, a little bit of the fringe. Yeah, Kind of like Palm Springs or something like this, drive up exactly. the real estate value. And then they named uh, the new land or the, the mainland of North America Vinland. Is that right? Yeah, which means land of grapes or land of wine. This remains a little bit of a mystery because there actually are not grapes in this site where they found uh, evidence of Viking settlement. So the theory is is that this was a base camp and that from there they traveled around the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And if you go, for instance, to New Brunswick, there are grapes. So huh. perhaps Vinland refers to this overall region they explored rather than this specific settlement. Now, anywhere in the world, it seems the great artifacts of ancient civilizations and so on are collected in the National Museum. Is there one great repository of all the scant little remains of these explorers in Canada or in the United States that people should know about? Uh, no. I mean, the Smithsonian has bits and pieces, but I think this is part of the fun. If you really want to get into this history, you have to travel and go to these sites because generally there are a few things. For instance, at the Viking site, you know, they have a dozen or so um, artifacts that they've found uh, of the Vikings and also the house sites and the archaeological dig, but you have to go there to see it. Likewise with Coronado in the southwest and DeSoto in the southeast and other remains. So I, I think uh, some who's serious about this history, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the adventure. You trek to these places. It's really historical tourism. So there's no history on a lazy Susan for people who want to check out this lost century. No, I think, I think you really got to get your hands dirty with this one well, and just uh, get out there and, and do what uh, these early explorers did. And it also helps you appreciate how astonishing it is, you know, what they did to even in a car to follow sure. the routes oh, of these conquistadors for 3,000 miles. You get a sense of one, just how astonishing it is that they did it, but also their sense of wonder at the size and uh, majesty of this continent. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tony Horowitz, author of A Voyage Long and Strange, Rediscovering the New World. Tony, let's say I'm, I got kids who I wish were excited about the roots of our country and so on, and I want to take them on a, I think theme trips with a history sort of agenda are, are really great these days. Let's say I've got a couple weeks. I want to take the family on the road. There's all these myths and stories and legends, but mm -hmm. I want the kids to have some actual tangible opportunity to gain an appreciation of this. Give me a, a quick rundown on what itinerary you would propose for us. 
for the Spanish, again, I think the Southwest, and there's particularly a, a corridor in, in Western uh, New Mexico, essentially stretching from uh, Zuni um, to Albuquerque, where you get a very strong sense of both the landscape and the history. Uh, Zuni Pueblo survives, and, and uh, Acoma Pueblo, the sky city of Acoma, which the Spanish visited in the 1500s, is to me one of the most astonishing sites in America, this uh, ancient Pueblo that perches hmm. on top of this towering mesa, and you can tour that. And another site in between that's called El Moro, which is a bluff that the Spanish and other travelers essentially left graffiti on over the centuries. It was a place to stop on a long journey. You have Indian carvings, Spanish carvings, later American pioneers. You have this wonderful drawing board of history there on that bluff. And there are other wonderful sites around there. For the Spanish, I would certainly highlight that part of New Mexico. And the big shot there was Coronado, and that was around the 1540s, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, he came through in the 1540s, but there were later Spanish expeditions that followed the same route, basically, okay. from Zuni down to the Rio Grande uh, near Albuquerque. For the English, you have a, a wonderful duo that are quite close by, um, Jamestown in Virginia and Roanoke Island in North Carolina. These were the first two serious English attempts at creating colonies uh, in North America. Both have wonderful national parks. And I think kids, you know, they love mystery, and certainly uh, Roanoke provides that, the lost colony of Roanoke. And Jamestown uh, is a very dramatic story and a quite violent one. Uh, kids also like a high body count, and uh, <laughs> Jamestown certainly uh, provides that, I think. Yeah, Mary in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, emailed us, and she asks, have you found out anything about the Roanoke settlement? What's the latest thinking on that? Yeah. Well, for those who aren't familiar with it, just briefly, there were 114 settlers left there in 1587. And then they were never seen or heard from again, except for a carving they left on a, a tree, a kind of cryptic carving. So ever since, there's been this wonderful mystery of what happened to the colonists at Roanoke. Uh, I'm not going to give away the game, but in the book, I do uh, follow archaeologists and scholars, and some of them quite eccentric, who are to this day still digging and still exploring and still trying to figure that out. But uh, the park at uh, Roanoke Island is a fun place to begin that exploration. And, and with kids, there's also a wonderful um, outdoor theater where they do a play every summer called The Lost Colony that tells the history and the romance of it. Okay, so we've got the Spanish in Arizona and New Mexico. we got the English, Jamestown and Roanoke area. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then yep. the French. I think the French, historically, was the part of the story that surprised me the most. I think if Americans think about the French on this continent, they imagine them up on the, the St. Lawrence and maybe poking a little bit into New England. But they were actually in Florida in the 1560s, 60 years ahead of the Pilgrims. French Protestants came here escaping religious persecution in Europe and created a very large settlement near Jacksonville. And there's another, I think, wonderful small park there at a place called Fort Caroline where you can learn about this incredible forgotten story which ends in a massacre. The Spanish chase them out and it ends in really slaughter. And near there you can visit also St. Augustine, which is the first permanent Spanish settlement on this continent. So it's another spot where you can kind of uh, get two for one. Now, St. Augustine must be one of the best places to actually see surviving architecture from 16th century. Is that right? Yeah, St. Augustine is, is uh, in one sense, a, a fabulous historic site because it is the oldest uh, European city on the continent, and quite a bit of it survives. Uh, the problem in St. Augustine is it's it's been rather disnified. Hmm. It's a little hard sometimes to separate the real history from the sort of uh, commercially fabricated history. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's a wonderful place to visit, but you have to be a little careful and keep your sense of humor because not everything you'll hear there really checks out historically. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Of course, we know about Ponce de Leon's uh, search for the Fountain of Youth. That really was mm -hmm. a fiasco that left nothing for us to see, wasn't it? Or How does that factor into all this? Well, you can drink from the uh, alleged Fountain of Youth in St. Augustine. That's one of those sites, I would say, where you have to keep uh, your sense of humor because there's actually no evidence, uh, one, that Ponce de Leon was searching for a Fountain of Youth. He was only 39 at the time, and he certainly didn't find one, and he didn't even land at St. Augustine. He's believed to have landed closer to Daytona Beach. 
So it's a wonderful story, and they have a lot of fun with it in St. Augustine. But again, um, it's not something I think you should take as uh, serious history. Okay. I would think just reading this book ahead of time would certainly focus you in on what's fact and what's fiction, what's worth running down, and so on. The surprising thing to a lot of us is I thought the Mayflower was like a a bushwhacking uh, exploration to a zone that people really were (laughs) overwhelmed by mystery about. But really, it seems like it was almost routine by 1620 to be taking a boat from uh, Europe to the new land, to the new country. It was, and and Plymouth itself had been visited a number of times by Europeans. It obviously wasn't known as Plymouth yet. And in fact, the disease that earlier Europeans brought had depopulated much of the coast of New England. So the pilgrims who are really latecomers, in a sad way, they profit by these earlier expeditions that have, in a sense, blazed a trail uh, primarily with disease. So they inhabit at Plymouth what's really a ghost town, an Indian ghost town that's been emptied by an epidemic. So yes, they're by no means uh, arriving at, at a virgin wilderness. They're arriving on a continent that's really already been reshaped by a, a century or so of European contact. So what's this disease? Did it impact the uh, indigenous people or the previous European colonists? All across the Americas, European diseases to which uh, natives had no immunity had a really devastating impact. Scholars estimate that between 75 and 90 percent of the native population of the Americas died during these early decades of contact. We can't always identify the uh, diseases specifically because the people writing then didn't have our uh, medical knowledge, but smallpox was certainly one, uh, tuberculosis, pneumonia, any number of diseases. And yes, in New England, a devastating epidemic in the early 1600s uh, Mm. really wiped out huge numbers of natives along the coast. And the Europeans had the um, immune system to handle these diseases, so it didn't impact them as severely? Yeah, the Europeans were carriers, and they didn't recognize um, that they were doing this, although they knew something was up. They often write about how soon after they would visit an Indian village, the Indians would start dying. And there's a very intriguing account from North Carolina in the 1580s where an Englishman writes, an Englishman who has learned uh, Indian languages writes that the Indians think the English are shooting them with invisible bullets which, if you think about it, was more or less the case with microbes rather than actual bullets. Were these people doing this intentionally, or or was it just an accidental result of their... No, there's no evidence that they were spreading disease intentionally. They didn't have germ theory in that day. They didn't understand how disease was transmitted. Um, So it was certainly unintentional. But that being said, there was also a a lot of intentional killing as well, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with weapons or stealing food and causing famine. So... It's not always a pretty picture from this period. I think we have to take the bad with the good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're rediscovering the new world with Tony Horwitz, the author of A Voyage Long and Strange. Tony, when you're thinking about rediscovering the new world, you've got to go to Columbus and the Dominican Republic. What is there to see for a traveler relating to Columbus in his voyages? Yeah, I think uh, yet another misconception many Americans have is that Columbus came here to the United States or what's now the U.S. He never did. His first landing was in the Caribbean, and then he went around Central and South America. But his first true colony was in uh, what's now uh, Haiti in the Dominican Republic. And if you go to the DR today, you can um, visit the tomb where his bones allegedly (laughs) reside and several of the early Spanish cities that were established during his lifetime and after. So actually, there's quite a lot to see in the Dominican Republic relating to this early history. And that goes back a full 100 years before Jamestown and Plymouth. So that's another reminder that there's uh, Spanish settlements in the New World long before those English. The late 1400s, right at the end of the 1400s, And Santo Domingo, which is the capital of the DR, was a substantial city already in the early 1500s uh, with a university and hospitals and many fine buildings that stand to this day. Now, would these early cities have been exclusively European populations or would there have been a commercial mix of natives and Europeans? As far as residents. There was a mix of natives and Europeans, and also from a very early point, you have Africans as well who are brought as slaves as the uh, native population begins to die out from disease. They uh, import African labor. Uh, you have Moors. You have people from mm-hmm. other European countries. It's a very cosmopolitan period, really, a, a very diverse period in our history. Tell me about the Columbus jinx. 
<laughs> El Fuku de Cologne, uh, which, yeah, translates roughly as the Columbus jinx. They're not really very fond of Columbus in the Dominican Republic. He's seen as kind of the advanced man of empire who did uh, tremendous damage, particularly to the native people of Hispaniola, the island uh, that mm. the DR is part of. So they believe, or many uh, Dominicans believe, that anything to do with Columbus brings bad luck. So you don't find, for instance, many businesses called uh, Columbus this or Columbus <laughs> that in the DR. So talking about these early settlements makes me think of the the drama that must have occurred when you have that first contact, the first time these Native Americans met these European explorers, and the wonder when these European explorers first met these uh, probably surprisingly advanced settlers in a completely unknown land. Did you uncover any of that wonder in your research, and what's your take on that, Tony? Yeah, to me, this is really the most thrilling part of exploring this period because again and again, you're reading accounts of an experience we simply can't have today, no matter how far we travel, which is that first contact between cultures that have never encountered or even imagined each other. How do they communicate? How do they get along? You know, what happens? It's a wonderful sort of study in human behavior, and no two stories are alike. So to me, that's uh, really the fantastic, almost a science fiction element to the story, and you really do get a powerful sense of it again and again and again. What a fascinating thing to delve into, and it's something that's so obvious, but we don't even consider it, rediscovering the new world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tony Horowitz, who is helping us rediscover the new world with his new book, A Voyage Long and Strange. Tony, this is a voyage long and strange for you all over the the new world, really. If you were to put a photograph on the cover of your book of all the things that you saw and learned, what's the one image that would capture the wonder of this topic for you? I think it might be um, a fringe, a shoreline with heavy woods, because one of the things that struck me in these accounts is as they approached America in their ships, they would often describe smelling the land before they could even see it. And uh, to me, that conveys, again, the wonder of how this enormous unknown continent must have seemed to Europeans who had never seen it before. And we, we take this place for granted. We live here. But if you try and imagine that, being on a boat and the dense woods of the Carolinas wafting out to sea, that to me uh, kind of captures this period and why it's so incredible. And all of us can enjoy a little bit of that wonder, rediscovering the new world, reading Tony Horowitz's new book, a voyage long and strange. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You'll find a link to Tony Horwitz's latest book at avoyagelongandstrange.com. His other books include Blue Latitudes, Confederates in the Attic, and Baghdad Without a Map. Up next, we're finding out what thousands of travelers from around the world are discovering today in Antarctica. Our sailing buddy, Anthony Sandberg, takes your calls next at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Now on Travel with Rick Steves... Let's see what kinds of exotic adventures to strange and remote lands we can still find today. Joining us is Anthony Sandberg from the Olympic Circle Sailing School in Berkeley, California. One of his latest expeditions takes travelers from the tip of South America to the shores of Antarctica. Anthony, thanks for joining us again. So glad to be here, Rick. Thank you for having me on. Now, I want to talk today about sailing south and really south. I understand you take tours down to Antarctica I do. Are we talking actually sailing? Are we talking in a big, huge sort of cruise ship? Or or what do people experience when they go to Antarctica? What we choose to do is charter a small Russian icebreaker and take about 100 people with a crew of 60. So we're able to get up close and personal to the ice, break through it in some cases, and spend time kayaking, skiing, ice climbing, and snow camping while we're there. So we have a couple-a-week adventure that really gets you up close and personal with the entire experience of the island. Now, other people are more adventurous, and they choose to go on a small sailing boat, um, as small I know of one that's 65 feet, that every year they take six passengers and you sail down there under your own power. 
And then a step up from that is a square rigger called Europa, which allows about 35 passengers to participate hmm. in an old-fashioned 100-year-old uh, ship that's still uh, plying those seas. So, so a lot are, of ways to do it. Those are the Shackleton wannabes, huh? Exactly, exactly. People are so inspired by that Shackleton story, <laughs> so they want to go to the coldest, driest, and windiest place on Earth in a sailboat. Yeah. They want a piece of that action. And at the other end, Antarctica now has become the place to go to or say you've been, whereas 10, 12 years ago, maybe 5,000 people went down to Antarctica. Today, probably 50,000 will go down next year. So a lot of bigger cruise ships are also going down with all the comforts that you expect in the Caribbean or when you're touring in the Mediterranean. might have 500 or 1,500 or 2,000 passengers. Wow. Now, I can't help but think of, you know, pristine places like Mount Fuji just covered with litter as thousands and thousands of people hike up to what was a, a pristine corner of this planet. So you got all of a sudden 50,000 people heading down to Antarctica. Is uh, in the environment a concern when tour organizations take people down there? Well, it is. Now, fortunately, all of the organizations that do take people down have, have signed an agreement around a range of different procedures and practices that are designed to protect the area as much as possible. So, for example, only 50 people at any one time are allowed to land in any one spot. Well, now, if you're on a smaller ship, that's very easy to do, and you can spend a lot of time. If you're on a big ship, hmm. you may only get one chance to spend one hour over um, the entire course of the trip, and the rest is looking out at a distance or watching the video that was taken that day. Now, that would be a major consideration when you're signing up for something. If, if you book a ship that's got uh, 300 people on it, you get one-sixth the access to the landmass down there. Is that right? That's right. You're getting a, a smaller slice of that pie. Now, in some cases, that's sufficient for people. A lot of folks, uh, when they're cruising, don't even choose to get off the ship. Huh. The kind of people I like to travel with uh, want to be on land as much as possible, and the opportunity to, to spend time, which is in terms of days instead of hours, is really attractive. Oh, I would think so. Now, who actually owns Antarctica? Well, you know, no one owns it, but by agreement, it is not to be disturbed until 2044. So we have a few more years in which no mining or any other commercial use of that wonderful continent it will be allowed but that'll be up for renegotiation. At this point, if you look at a geographic map, you'll find that Antarctica is, has a lot of slices, a little slice for Argentina, a little slice for Norway, a big slice for the United States, big slice for Russia. And that all of them retain a, some at least minimal number of scientists who um, keep a toehold or a foothold there. And in 2044, it's no holds barred. Any of those people can uh, mine that land as they like? Well, boy, we really hope that that's not the case, but it would be hard to have any section of the earth that mm -hmm. large and not have it contain, unfortunately, oil and mm -hmm. gold and yeah. resources of all kinds. Anthony, you said uh, a great way to go down there is in a Russian boat. Now, normally when travelers consider some uh, vehicle to fly or cruise in, they don't think Russian equals quality. Uh, why would you choose a Russian boat? Well, probably the most knowledgeable ice sailors, the sailors that sail either the northern waters, Murmansk, and over the northern part of Russia and Norway and uh, Greenland, and in the southern oceans, are going to be the Russians. They had more ships and more experience, and they are ice-hardened ships really designed for that run. The ships that we go on are um, in beautiful condition, are well handled, mm. and it's a delight to make friends with people who were supposed to be our enemies just a few years ago. There's 100 people on the ship and 60 crew. That seems like an amazing ratio. There's a lot of crew per traveler. Well, there is a lot of crew, and part of that crew are professional experts, geologists, historians, animal experts that really bring that whole experience alive. So essentially day and night, you can be in the presence of a world-famous explorer or um, adventurer who is sharing their very personal knowledge of the Antarctic experience. So this sounds like a plush, luxurious experience where you're mixing sort of a comfortable modern boat with a very uh, top-end staff to teach you all, all the natural wonders you're encountering to get to an expensive sort of destination. So altogether, it's quite a fascinating opportunity from a travel point of view. Is it expensive? For the two-week trip that we run, about $5,000 a person. Two That's weeks, a double 5, occupancy cabin. From the United States? Uh, you fly yourself down to Ushuaia, but once you're there, you're stepping aboard the vessel and everything is included. Now, Ushuaia is the, the southernmost city in the world, right, in Tierra del Fuego? 
That's exactly right. That's part of Terra del Fuego, and it's what uh, is that like? It's actually a, a sizable city. Well, it is, you know, and it's growing very rapidly. And you can imagine from accommodating 5,000 guests who are preparing to go off on an adventure to 50,000 in a 10-year period. Mm -hmm. So over the years, I've seen this go from a a small kind of frontier town to a place that has some touches of Vail, Colorado with upscale shopping. Ushuaia. So it is the springboard for Antarctic explorations. It's the major place. Now, other people do run trips out of Cape Town, South Africa, and New Zealand. Those are the two other locations Mm -hmm. that are close to the Antarctic. But to get to where the greatest life in Antarctica exists, it's going to be that point that uh, it's called Graham Land. It's that narrow peninsula that it reaches up and tries to meet the south tip of South America. Okay, so that's where it's all at from a, a convenient tour guiding point of view. You want your explorers to go to that area of Antarctica just south of South America. That's where the greatest concentration of the krill, which is the largest biomass in the world. It's the small sea of red shrimp that feeds and is the basis of everything that is living down there. So the great whales eat it, and so do the penguins and the seals. We, we know about the tragedy of the uh, melting ice cap and how chunks of ice the size of Connecticut are falling off and melting into the sea and so on. I'm also concerned about just the vibrancy of the sea life that you see down there. Now, you know, I live in the Northwest. When I was a kid, you could just pick up oysters and crab and salmon everywhere, and now it's it's almost, they're gone. Is the same sad sort of reality going on down in Antarctica, or do you still have lush, plentiful wildlife? You know, I, this is, I think, perhaps one of the last places on Earth where it's still vibrant, lush, and powerful, and so accepting of your presence. Uh, there is not a, any sense of fear. It's just like going to the Galapagos Islands. These animals don't really have predators There is fishing and perhaps overfishing outside of the islands, but you're still going to see hundreds of thousands of penguins and thousands and thousands of seals. And so that vibrancy and that energy is is still available and and available for you to get up close and personal. I mean, you're within Hmm. a hand's distance from these beautiful animals. I'm talking with Anthony Sandberg, and he's the founder and president of uh, a huge sailing school in Berkeley, California, OCSC. And we have Rick on the line in Seattle. Rick, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. Rick in Seattle to Rick in Seattle. What's your question or comment for Anthony? Well, I went on a trip like that a year and a half ago with a uh, 100-passenger converted Russian ship. And I can tell all your listeners it was one of the most fantastic trips of my life. And uh, my question for Anthony is... His trip begins in Ushuaia. Where does it end? And does he go to the Falklands uh, or South Georgia Island also? You know, we have two trips. One is the shorter one that goes directly down to the um, Graham Land. And, of course, you see Deception Island and King George Island. And that's really about five, six days right down there. The other one is a 21-day trip and goes over to the South Shetlands, uh, the South Orkney Islands, and Falklands and is the much longer trip. I went on one including the Falklands and South Georgia, and I loved that. I really liked them as much as Antarctica, although Antarctica is certainly very special. What company did you go with, Rick? I went with Zegram Expeditions, and we went on the Clipper Adventure. Zegram, how do you spell that? I think it's Z-E-G-R-A-H-M. Their uh, office is located in Seattle. Okay, now, you said, like, the most fantastic travel experience of your life, and you sound like a well-traveled person. Share with us, what's so dramatic and and thrilling about going to the coldest, driest, and windiest place on Earth? Well, I think uh, seeing icebergs is quite special, but the trips on land were unbelievable for me. Just seeing all those penguins and being around thousands of penguins and being able to take their pictures. Also, I'd read all of Shackleton's books because I'm a climber. And for me, going to South Georgia, we repeated part of his climb across the island of South Georgia, and that was also really special. Wow, if you're into Shackleton, that would be thrilling. You mentioned that South Georgia and the Falklands rivaled the actual experience in Antarctica. Is that because of your romantic attraction to the whole Shackleton story, or or what else? It was partly that, but also partly um, there were some species of penguins and other seabirds that we saw on those islands that we did not see in Antarctica. And how did the Russian boat work for you and your fellow passengers? Oh, it was tremendous. Why? It was really, I mean, it was, I'm not used to fancy things. You know, the meals were tremendous, and the naturalists were great. And like Anthony said, all those naturalists on board 
are part of what you're paying for, and that makes the trip. Uh, Rick, in, in your experience, did the tour attract obnoxious landlubbers or interesting travel mates? No, it attracted interesting travel mates. I've been to Europe and uh, been to most of the countries you write about and done it on my own or with just one other person. So I was uh, a little bit concerned about whether this might be too many landlubbers, but most of them were really interested in adventure and everybody got off on the trips by the Zodiacs to get into shore, and I thought the shipmates were great. That's a key element, isn't it, Anthony, when you're going to be doing something that's demanding and kind of challenging, uh, is to have people that have a good spirit for the adventure. High on my list is the experience of really enjoying and, and having the luxury of having conversations that go on for hours on hours to get to know people in a deep and meaningful way. And you can't help but come back changed when you see hmm. that kind of extraordinary beauty of, yeah. uh, of the Antarctic, absolutely. I was just thinking about that the other day, how there's almost a moral requirement for a good tour guide to set up a nice atmosphere where there's meaningful conversation to get the group enjoying this opportunity to be learning and experiencing something really powerful with strangers that are new friends and, and make it to be a rich social and community experience as well as a travel adventure. If you can set it up so that there's permission to be playful and permission to be introspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite memories is being on the on the glaciers this last time. It took about, I don't know, four hours to ski up 3,000 feet, you know, with skins on our skis. And mm. we got to the top, and a couple of Swiss fellows that were along started yodeling and taught us all how to uh, join in. And I said, this is just about heaven. That's great. Hey, Rick, uh, tell us one memory you have of being on the mainland of Antarctic that was uh, a particularly vivid memory. Seeing the, the penguins right up close and personal. That was special. And Rick, did you get your uh, Shackleton uh, fantasies dealt with? Yes. <laughs> Anthony, half the people must be like Shackleton enthusiasts that take these Oh, studies. you have to be. You know, the richness of the experience, um, one could go down and just look at icebergs and animals, but do some homework, and certainly before you go and then while you're there, when you read these stories of the courage and the tenacity of the people that were in uh, reindeer sleeping bags and canvas clothing, hmm. pretty it's, amazing. It's wild. Hey, Rick, thanks for your call. Thank you. And continued happy travels. Anthony, I know that uh, the ship seems to be just a wonderland for adults who want a meaningful education and a comfortable vantage point to see all this great natural wonders, but also I would imagine the off-boat activities are really uh, a unique part of this experience. Give us a quick rundown on, on the various excursions that are popular with groups that go to Antarctica. The first one is simply getting ashore. That is so powerful. Everyone is going to take a camera. And many people are perfectly happy spending time just taking that lifetime set of pictures. In addition, just going for walks along the shore and going for little tours in the inflatable uh, dinghies that they have, you begin to explore um, a particular group of icebergs or a rookery. Then on our trips, we add cross-country skiing, ice climbing, and uh, camping at least one night overnight in uh, snow tents so that you really have a, a, an experience of being there on the ice with the animals. Boy, stepping That's out cool. in the morning or in the darkness even on a tent in Antarctica must be a great experience. Now, one of the things that people associate with the Arctic is desperate deep cold. But of course, when we're there, it's summertime there. The sun virtually does not set. The worst and most dark it gets is twilight, in which you could read a book. Huh. And the temperature runs at about 32 degrees, and it's very dry. We're talking December, January? Yeah, November through February. That's a peak season, season in Antarctica. Okay, and you're going yeah, to be dealing absolutely. with uh, the most crowds, the longest days, and the warmest weather. Also, what is the biggest surprise you find your, your traveling customers uh, have after a trip down there? Well, I think one of them is the, the sense that they were the only ones there. The wonderful thing is all the ships that are traveling down there try to be very respectful and keep a distance over the horizon. So the great majority of the time, you're never going to see another ship. And each time you visit a different point or a different island or sound, you'll have a sense that you're the only one there and you have that direct relationship. So that it still doesn't have the crowded feeling. So that's wow. really a pretty wonderful thing. Now, one thing that occurs time and time again is this magic of the penguins. Relate just to a close encounter with the penguins. I remember this last time we stopped, we had a very smooth passage across. We were half a day early because the seas were perfectly flat. We stopped at King George Island, and there were a huge group of chinstrap penguins, and in among them was one king penguin who stood about twice as tall. 
I was one of the first ones off the boat, and somehow he imprinted on me, figuring that I must, you know, I better stick with the tall guys. And so the two of us walked together for about an hour, shoulder to shoulder, and I felt like he was saying, hey, I'm with the big guy. Uh, <laughs> so I had a up-close and personal relationship with the penguin. Do you get a sense that the penguins notice the visit or even enjoy the visit from these humans? You know, they don't pay a lot of attention to us. That was the most relationship I've had with the penguin. I think one of the amazing things is you see them arguing over those little rocks that they build their um, nests over. You see the change of egg care that going from one to the other. You can't tell which one's a male or female, but one has gone out and been collecting food and eating for uh, the last week, and the others sat there patiently on the egg. But that's happening two feet away from you, literally. You're not supposed to reach out and touch them, but, you know, if they choose to reach out and touch you, nobody stops them. We've been talking with Anthony Sandberg. Anthony is the founder and president of OCSC, the nation's largest single-location sailing school in Berkeley, California. You can learn more about Anthony's work at his website, OCSC.com. And, Anthony, sum up for me one magic, intriguing image of an experience sailing down to Antarctica. This last time, we were six of us in, a, in one of the inflatables doing a little tour of the icebergs. We were visited by a minky whale, as soon as you see whales, you turn off the engine. In this case, this minky whale came up to us, rested our boat on its nose, and just stood there and breathed with us and actually began humming. So we felt like we were being vibrated by this whale song. And I don't know where in the world you could go and and have that kind of experience. That was absolutely amazing. Once you turn off that motor, it's perfect silence. You can hear the water lapping against the hull of your boat, and then you've got this incredible encounter with something you'd find nowhere else on this planet. Exactly. Thank you very much. Well, you know, one of my great disappointments is that the penguins and the leopard seals never write, never call. After, you know, we have that kind of up-close-and-personal relationship, you'd think that they try to stay in touch but ah. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Charlie Esposito at Audio Lucians on Martha's Vineyard and to Milt Wallace at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their help today. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.